The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. First of all, it's, it's when, the, when the lights come on, the priests come out at night. So, you know, when they come on, it's time to shine. You're listening to the From the Pink Seats podcast, powered by the State of Louisville Network. Welcome into the very first episode of From the Pink Seats podcast covering Louisville football for the State of Louisville Podcast Network. I am Jacob Lane and I am one half of your hosting team for this podcast and I am super excited, one, to be here and to begin talking about Louisville football on the new show, but I am also extremely excited about my co-hosts. When we set out and launched this show nearly a year ago, just the idea of the show, we had no idea what this was going to turn into To be completely honest with you, this was actually supposed to be the podcast that turned into the Big Red Lily podcast where Presley and I were previously, but this has been a vision of ours for quite some time. But let me introduce my co-host. I am super excited about this. I got on that long-winded tangent to say we found the perfect co-host for the show, and I am extremely excited. A lot of you are very familiar with Matt McGavick of um, Sports Illustrated, who is the deputy editor for the Louisville Report covering the Louisville Cardinals, and now my co-host. Matt, welcome into the show. How are you doing, my friend? It's great to have you here. I'm doing great, Jacob. When you first came to me with this idea about being your co-host for the podcast, man, I couldn't wait to get started. Now, I know a lot of people around here are more familiar with my baseball work, and with good reason. Baseball is my main passion, but prior to my passion for baseball really taking off in the last decade, half decade or so, I used to be really big into pro football growing up a Colts fan, watching all those old Colts teams with Peyton Manning, Reggie Wayne, Austin Colley, Bob Sanders, Freeney and Mathis. So before alongside baseball football is one of my main passions in the sporting realm so when you came to me with this idea to be your coach for the podcast I couldn't get started fast enough yeah man and this is certainly the season to start a podcast uh, especially for Louisville just considering everything that has happened so far through 2020 and if you're listening to this uh, Please, obviously, don't turn it off, but go over to thestateoflouisville.com. We've got a a lot of great material out there today, one of which being an article where I have essentially broken down the entire season and kind of given you a synopsis of all that has happened. And to save time for the the show tonight, Matt, we are not going to dive into what has happened prior to Syracuse on on Friday night, but I really am excited to, to look forward to the rest of this season it's been an interesting year, and things have not quite gone the way that we expected as Louisville fans and 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 uh, reporters covering the, po- uh, the the season, Matt. But um, I still think that there's a lot of things to be excited about, don't you? Oh, there's absolutely a lot of things to still be excited about. There's still two football games left on the se- left on the schedule. The season's not quite done yet, and I know a lot of fans want to act like the season's already over. And I mean, I I can understand why. I mean, they're two and six. I mean, a lot of people, myself included, think they had a dark horse chance to get to the ACC championship game behind. Clemson and Notre Dame I know when I first saw the schedule come out I was I was really high on their chances they didn't have to play Clemson they didn't have to play uh, North Carolina so at when I first saw that I thought you know what if things break the right way they've got a real shot to get to Charlotte and of course as we know by now things didn't exactly break the right way in this great year of our Lord 2020 but there's still a lot to play for I mean there's still a lot um some of the young guys that we saw in this Syracuse game, they're getting a lot of PT down the stretch. We're going to see what this team is made of going down, and I'm excited to see what pans out. 
Absolutely. All right. Before we get into talking about Syracuse and previewing Boston College, Matt, I've got a fun little segment for the first show. For the people who don't know you or myself, you and I have actually never met in person. Um, outside of texting and and um, DMs, we have never actually held a face-to-face conversation. So we are just kind of starting to feel this process out and truly get to know each other as hosts and kind of figuring out this chemistry thing. So I thought it'd be fun for us to kind of have an icebreaker of sorts. I know that we're not at a corporate retreat or in the ninth grade starting high school, but I thought <laughs> I thought what better way for me to get to know Matt than ask him some weird questions. So All right, fire I, asked away. To, I asked you to bring some questions to the show. I hope you brought those. I have brought a couple, but the first thing I want to start with was our question of the night, which if you've been following us on Twitter, you have seen that by now. If not, I'm not sure what you're doing at pink seeds pod. Uh, please give us a follow and stay tuned to everything for the show there. But we put out the question, what has been your favorite memory sitting in those pink seats? Those pink seats have essentially been there since like 1999, 2000-ish, when the, when the sun really started to beat on them for a few seasons. So we've seen a lot, Matt. What has been your favorite moment as a Louisville fan from those pink seats? Honestly, one that I've actually been there in person for. The first When you first posed this question to me, for some reason, the first one that came to me was – I believe in 2011 or 2012, the Cincinnati rain game where it was just pouring cats and dogs. It was in an absolute monsoon. I believe that game ended up going to overtime, if I remember correctly. There's been a lot of good games, but for some reason, that one in particular came out to me. And for the main reason is this, a little bit of a story. I went to that game. I've had, when I was still in Louisville at the time. I think it was either my freshman or sophomore year. And I actually went to that game with a girl I was seeing at the time. And we actually sat under the portico, kind of out away from the rain and whatnot. And then I think it was had a comfortable lead in the closing minutes, closing seconds, something like that. Of course, I'm not one to want to leave the game early, but she wanted to leave the game early. She kept egging on. And I'm like, yeah, we can go ahead and leave. So I'm leaving. I'm leaving the stadium. And then as we're walking through, I believe the purple lot, we just hear all this cheering. I can't remember. I can't remember what was what happened. It was either Louisville tied it to go to overtime or Cincinnati tied to overtime. But regardless, overtime was forced after I thought the outcome of the game was determined. And so it, Louisville ended up pulling away and winning that game. But my moral from that day forward, I would never leave a Louisville sporting event early, no matter what the score was, because as we know, as Louisville fans. No matter what the score is, at what time period, some weird, weird stuff could happen. You're exactly right. And oddly enough, this podcast was almost named the Beat the Traffic podcast because that is oh exactly God. what our fans, <laughs> like like you say, that they love to do. They love to get to their cars. It would be an cars. appropriate name, that's for sure. It, look, man, you could look at that podcast, Harden, and know exactly what fan base you're talking about with that. So I, I love to hear that. Mine is <laughs> is a tie, to be, to be quite honest with you. One of these moments, you wouldn't think of it to be a great moment, but for me, this was something I'll never forget. Let me start. The, the West Virginia blackout game, I believe in 2005 was the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I was... No, it was 06. 06. All right. So I would have been I would have been 13 years old at the time, uh, really just starting to come into my fandom as a Louisville Cardinal football fan. And that game I will never forget with my mom and my sister freezing cold on a school night. Um, I don't know what we were doing there uh, in terms of it. I mean, the game didn't start until 738. I didn't get home until probably midnight, but it truly was one of the greatest nights of my life. Um, I didn't get to rush the field, but I knew a lot of people who did in that game. And I, I can just still vividly remember watching people kind of pour out from their seats onto the field to celebrate that moment. That game was one of the greatest football games I've ever seen. Just the back and forth, the, the star power that was on both sides and just truly how explosive the game was. It, it was, you know, pretty similar to the offense, you know, type of a performance we saw last year with Louisville or even in some of the Lamar Jackson years. Um, that game stands out because it was just such a fun game, such a big moment for Louisville. The second one is not one you would think of or that would come to your radar. When you think Louisville versus Florida State at Cardinal Stadium, your mind is usually going to go to one of to, two places. It's 0-2. 16 game. Right, 16 with Lamar Jackson. Um, and then the game in 0-2 with, with Henry Miller scoring the game-winning touchdown in the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those games were legendary. But my favorite, favorite game that I've been to at Louisville was uh, Florida State in 2014. I knew um, you were going to bring that up. And look, man, the game didn't go Louisville's way. But the start of that game um, was possibly the most uh, – just the, the the best atmosphere I can remember at Cardinal Stadium. It was a night game. Um, Louisville was rocking the gray uniforms that they had just rolled out. Like, I remember it like it was yesterday, man. I was um, fourth row, fourth row from the field behind the Louisville bench. And I will never forget. Maybe this is why it's my favorite moment. But I remember before the game started, I looked over to my friend who I was at the game with, and I said, watch this. First play of the game, slant over the middle of Devontae Parker. He's going to take it to the house. 
Is Will Gardner a quarterback? Devontae Parker's first game back. Matt, would you guess what the first play of the game was? Going into that, I I, I couldn't remember. <laughs> right. But it was a slant over the middle to Devontae Parker, who nearly took it to the house. That foot injury that he had come back from, you could tell he wasn't a healthy man, but that place exploded. Louisville got out to like a 21 to nothing lead. Ultimately, uh, Florida State came back and won. Jameis Winston and Dalvin Cook, that's the best running back and quarterback duo I've ever seen in my entire life, man, on the field. It was absolutely an incredible game. Oh, I know. They it's, lost, it's, but it was fun. It was one of those games that you just never never forget. It's funny you bring that up because I've actually got a really quick story. One, I love those Smoky Grays. They're probably one of my favorite alternate, alternates ever. Uh, two, I was still a student at that point. So this was around the time where uh, Jameis Winston was still – in the uh the public eye due to his uh, crab legs at Publix incidents yeah <laughs> so me being a smart aleck i went to a uh, joe's crab shack and i convinced the owner to sell me an entire box of crab bibs for about twenty dollars for about 200 of those suckers and i brought it to the game for the student section to wear that is incredible man absolutely incredible nowadays we would have been eating w's making fun of them on the sidelines it would have, it would have been glorious <laughs> but let's let's move into the second question here I, i've got one for you this one is non-sports related but um this is going to get to the core of kind of who you are as a person um what's the most embarrassing fashion trend you used to rock i mean throughout the first 15, 14 years of my existence, I rocked a bowl cut before. Most people, when they see me, they see me as bald. So I've, I've shaved my head for the well, about a decade now, just because I personally like the look. But before I did that, <laughs> I had a very inauspicious bowl cut, and that I just had no problem rocking. I didn't see what was wrong with it. I didn't know what fashion was. So it's in my mind, I was like, yeah, this, this is me. And then I look back at some of my some of my pictures as a kid now, and I'm like, oh my god, I, I let myself go out. The bowl cut is just never a good look. Like if it doesn't matter if 1998 is the year or if it's 2020. Like if you're rocking a bowl cut, uh, you need to look around at the people who you are friends with and and that's in your family and hold them accountable because the the bowl cut is just about as bad of a look as as you can get. All right, man. It's it's even better because I was chubby and I wore glasses, so you can just picture in your mind how I looked back then. It was bad. Oh, you'd love to hear it. All right, man. Let's let's move on. I've got another question for you here. This will be the third, and then I'll let you jump in with your two. Yeah, this one is this is a good question. I think it it again. I think this kind of tells at the core of who you are. If you were a superhero, what would be your superpower? Probably uh, telekinesis, because there, there's been something about that specific superpower that's always appealed to me. Because I'm a huge Star Wars fan slash nerd, so anything involving the Force has always piqued my interest. And of course, other superheroes in that in that realm possessing some sort of power, kind of like that. It's always taken a liking to me. I've not been the biggest fan of like the Green Lantern and some of the films that came out of that, but I love those kind of powers as he has and the ability to transform into pretty much any object and person and whatnot. That that would probably be my choice. Okay, okay, I can get down with that. I can get down with that. I like it. I, I thought you might say something like, you know, being invisible or... No, that's, that's too cliche. I mean, if you, Nine times out of ten when you ask someone that question, they're either going to say invincibility or the ability to fly. Or maybe x-ray vision. I like it. I can go with all three of them. All right, man. Let's say if you've got questions, let's, let's throw them out here. Let's see what you got. All right. My first one. Now, this doesn't have to do with any Louisville football game, but just any Louisville athletics event in general. What is the most odd thing you have ever seen doesn't matter if it was on the field in the stands let me hear it goodness gracious man that is that is a tough question because i've been to a lot of louisville games over the years and i have seen a lot of weird things um i i think that the, the first thing that comes to my mind is 2015 the trip to, to atlanta to play auburn uh, there was a guy behind me who just could not stop throwing up on himself, and like one of those guys, like one of those Louisville fans who you like. There's there's one in every section. I think that we, if you've been a season ticket holder, like you can pinpoint the person by name, or maybe yep. like the person who brought the person who did that. But this guy, I mean, the second quarter, you know, it's it's a little starting to, to make a comeback, and you got the guy behind you clearing out an entire section because he's passed out drunk throwing up all over himself. I've seen my fair share of those, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, and, and honestly, if I had more time to think through that, I've probably seen weirder things. Um, if I really thought about, like, some of the halftime shows and some of the, 
just some of the the, the weirder you know occurrences that take place. I saw Chris Jones throw a towel and that one time when he came out of a game one time playing basketball. Chris Jones from regard threw a towel because he was mad and it literally like wrapped around a manager's head. It was the most perfect throw <laughs> I've ever seen. But you felt so bad I think for the I manager because he's just standing there and he is oblivious to the fact that Chris Jones is about to just absolutely pelt him with a towel. With a towel and it went fully around his face, wrapped around. And he struggled to get it off. It was embarrassing. I felt awful for him. Like I was in his skin at that moment, and it was it was so cringy. I just felt terrible. Yeah, I, I think I remember that. That was um, it was early in the season, wasn't it? I can't remember it was who we were playing. I think I, I vaguely remember that. I don't remember who they were playing, but I do remember that. I believe being the game where Quentin Snyder threw the alley oop where he fell down at half court, and just kind of threw it up there, and Montrez and slammed it down as an alley oop. It didn't count, but I just remember that play happening in that game, and Chris Jones. Uh, young Quinn Snyder at that point, I believe, but Chris Jones getting pulled by Rick Pitino and being so mad about something that he threw the towel, and it just so happened to wrap around a poor man in his face. God, you know Chris Jones ran a lot of a lot of miles in that treadmill after that game. <laughs> There's no apology that could ever bring back an ego of getting a towel thrown at you <laughs> to kind of wrap around your head. All right, let's move on. Next question. All right, what is your favorite local food joint? Non non chain. Okay. My favorite local food food joint. If you are a student at the University of Louisville and you have never taken the truck to Germantown to go to Czech's Cafe, I do not know what you are doing. You're gonna walk in, you're gonna see a a, a, a small restaurant filled with about uh, 40 people who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who have been going there every night at dinner at 5 o'clock for the last 30 years. But Czech's Cafe is a staple in the Germantown area. It's a staple to the University of Louisville student um, student body. It is my favorite place. It is as basic as it gets in terms of food. But, man, it is good home cooking, and the beer is cheap as can be. You're talking, you know, a, a draft beer, Matt. I don't know if you drink drink beer, Matt, but one of the things you're oh, going to learn about me is I'm a huge beer drinker. I actually have got two right here in front of me right now. I do not podcast without drinking beer. Let that be known. Um, but but well, I'm talking well, when you man, go to, if I didn't know that, I'll, I might go grab a Guinness. Yeah, now. Man, it's, yeah, it's the, it's the it's the beer podcast. Like, but if you walk into checks and you go up, like you're thinking, man, this place is basic, and you, and you get your your buffalo chicken tenders and your fries with the most dank ranch that's out there, and you order your fat tire on draft, and your order is seven ninety nine total seven ninety nine for a beer and chicken fingers man it doesn't get much better than that um anytime i go to a game at the m center and i have time i will be at checks cafe beforehand you can bet that now, now that you mentioned fat tire that, that does sound good buffalo chicken tenders you, you're you're getting me hungry already <laughs> yeah man to, i might have to Look, go there this week yeah absolutely but so if you're a student at the university of louisville or you are a cardinal fan or just if you're just happen to stumble upon this podcast if there's one thing you take away from tonight is that you've got to check out checks cafe but let's let's transition here, Matt. Let's actually jump into football and let's talk about um, the Louisville football program and where things are. They're coming off of a nice win. I try not to get too overreacted to this just because of the fact that it is Syracuse. And Matt, this is the worst football team I have ever seen. Quite frankly, Louisville was was the worst football team in the country in 2018. If Syracuse is not the worst team in the country this year, I don't know who is. And I feel awful because just two years ago, Dino Babers was a guy who had the opportunity to just about pick any job he wanted. And now he's sitting here looking at, uh, you know, two straight seasons of disappointing um, play and potentially on his way out. I don't know if I would say he's on his way out, but it is disappointing to see where the state of Syracuse football, because like you said, in 2018, he had a 10-win Syracuse football team. And for those who are younger in the tooth, like like you and I, a lot of people don't know that Syracuse used to be a football program before Jim Beheim and company started crafting the Syracuse basketball program into what they are now. And to just see them fall so far from what they are just a couple seasons ago, it's, it's insane. Now, to be fair, a lot of it was not completely due to the efforts of Dino Babers because they have had a lot of injuries I mean they went for the, with a true freshman quarterback against Louisville because they just were so decimated at that position and plus they've had several opt-outs I know Andre Cisco, the pre I think he was a preseason All-American at safety he opted out I think they've had a couple other opt-outs and if I remember correctly uh, they were playing at either either guard position on the offensive line was a converted fullback so Saying that they've been decimated by injuries or opt-outs is, is, a, is an understatement. So I want to give Dino Babers a little bit of a pass, but in the same breath, it's 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 he does deserve a little bit of credit, well, not credit per se, a little bit of blame for where they are at this point because Dino Babers is an offensive genius. He's great with offensive line play, and they just, they just have not been able to get it done versus Louisville and all season. 
Yeah, and and you you mentioned the fullback at offensive guard. There also was the the commentators mentioned it a couple of times. You know, converted wide receivers playing defensive back. Um, and obviously, I want to get into talking about Malik Cunningham because that's for me one of the biggest takeaways is just his play. But um, I found it disappointing that after you know I, I should have known that doing my homework as somebody who covers the program that you know Syracuse has such a a blatant you know uh, mismatch and having former converted wide receivers out there playing defensive backs against this wide receiver group that we have for years now praised as being talented and being able to just have so many guys out there that can do so many things. But after I heard that, Matt, I couldn't help but be disappointed in and just the lack of um I, I don't want to say continuity but just the lack of rhythm that Mikhail that Mikhail that's the first time and only time on this podcast I'm going to call him that you got to hold <laughs> me to that Malik Cunningham could, <laughs> yes Cunningham QB1 number three whatever you want to call him he just couldn't find a rhythm there was no consistent throwing um against Syracuse and you know I know he ended the night 19 of 28 fairly good numbers when you talk about you know um passer rating and um you know completion completion percentage percentage and whatnot right that's a good night the yardage stands out but then you really look into it man and it's just an ugly game like it it really is the stats don't do it justice um and Syracuse was so depleted that I thought this should have been far worse it really should have I mean it's hard for me if you'd have told me before the season started that uh Cunningham would have performed like this up to this point I would have just laughed in your face because the man was two two pass attempts away from being the number two most efficient passer in the nation behind Joe Burrow and to see how far he's gone and come in his progression it's it's disheartening to watch. Now I know a lot of it is not due to him. And after the, the good start that the offensive line had to the season, their first three or so games, they've really come back to earth and haven't been doing a great job with keeping uh, Cunningham upright. But in the same breath, there have been several times this season where Malik McHale Cunningham, number three, whichever name we want to go with. I honestly can't remember at this point, but there've been several times uh, that Cunningham has thrown passes, whether it's down, it's down the field deep in the intermediates and the flats where he throws the ball and he just doesn't see the defender there. Like he's so keyed into his receiver and who is guarding that receiver that he doesn't see someone who's maybe playing down low in the zone, or maybe it's just off to the side. There've been at least three four maybe even five of his picks have been due to the fact that he just has not been paying as much attention around the the area which in which he's throwing which is is really disheartening and plus there have been times where it seems that with his fumbles he's been playing a little bit of hero ball he he did it um, in that final drive against Virginia where he was trying to make a lot out of nothing and then he was just kept dragging the Virginia defender's until the point where there were so many on them that they, there was no other outcome but to pop that ball out. So it, it feels like at this point he's trying to do a little bit too much and he's trying to force some of these throws. But I would think under this coaching staff and especially QB coach Frank Ponce that he would know better than to not do that. So we'll see how he goes in these final two games. I'm not sure he's going to change his ways at this point. I'm, I'm hoping, hoping he does. We'll see if he sticks around for another year. I'm, I'm kind of inclined to believe that he does because before the season, I thought that if he had another year like 2019, that he could be an early uh, entrant into the NFL draft. But I think at this point, I, I, I just don't see it. I think he's going to come back for another year, and I hope that he gets a little bit better with just checking around him for those defenders and getting better at reading some of these defenses. Yeah, I, I mean, you just about took the words right out of my mouth um, because in the off season, I talked to several people, uh, you know, for, for in terms of you know just trying to figure out where he was as a prospect. And I heard NFL; he's a potential NFL prospect if he has another season like last year. And you look at those stats, and the more I see them, the more misleading I think they are. Now, look, he was one of the best passers. I think he was the best passer in the country with a clean pocket last year. So let's start off this conversation about Malik by saying Louisville's offensive line, Matt, has been okay. Um, I think we've seen improvement from every piece on that line, especially since Cam DeGeorge came in and started playing serious snaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's let's not lie about the progress. They are not last year's offensive line. There is no, no. Mekhi Becton. There is no Tyler Haycraft on this offensive line. There is not that guy that you know is going to win that battle 10 out of 10 times. Uh, and there's a lot of reason why they're having to do so much bootlegging and so much uh, to get Malik out of the pocket to be able to have time to throw because the offensive line just isn't able to protect like they did last year. Now, when you dig into the numbers and you look at Cunningham on the season, there has been a lot to like. I mean, he's been much more improved in terms of a completion percentage. Um, he has at times really been able to you know, um, run the football 
and do so at a, at a very high clip, something that last year he didn't do a ton until the end of the season. Um, but when you look at the turnovers, they're, they're bad. The, the turnovers against Syracuse, the two picks and the fumble, the fumble was a one-handed uh, the grab of the football where he was just running lazily with it. He does that a lot if you watch him. He runs with the football with one hand like he's Lamar Jackson, um, and he is a swipe away from having you know four or five fumbles a game because of it. Um, I thought the two picks were both heat checks. I don't know what he was doing on the second pick. He wasn't even looking at the wide receiver. Uh, he just slung the ball. And I tweeted, in basketball, we call that a heat check. The, the momentum for Louisville was so hot at that time that he just came out and just thought, I'm going to just chuck it up. We're going to score. Like, momentum is on our right. side. We're going to figure it out. Um, and, and if this was a better team, Matt, Louisville would have lost this game because of those three turnovers. There's no doubt in my mind. Now, um, you, you look at the fact that Tutu didn't play a lot in this game because of the injury. Um, one, one reception for 19 yards, and you could tell. I don't know, you, you know, with you being at the game covering it, I don't know if you saw on TV, but they, they had a camera right by his face as he t- caught that touchdown. And I think it was Dwayne Martin was the first player to meet him. And you could see Tutu put his hand out like, hey, hey, no, 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 no. Like, don't jump. I, I can't celebrate. Like, you could tell he was in pain. Um, and, and I thought that – Having him out there would be a huge, you know, a huge help, even if it was a decoy, and that proved to be true. Um, I really like seeing that De- Des got involved on a couple of big plays. Braden Smith led the team in receptions. I loved seeing Josh Johnson. I love that nobody knew who that was. First of all, if you, if you, I'm not sure if you caught any of this either, but number zero, the whole game, they're like, who is this? There yeah, is some, no number zero on the depth chart. Some of us in the press box had trouble finding out who that was too, and we had to ask uh, Rocco Gasparro who who that was because it wasn't on the. Uh, <laughs> pre-game play sheet there was no number zero it's so funny because i you know i after that happened i tried to like put together a tweet and it just never ended up coming out but what it was like was louisville trying to pull a sneaky like were they trying to do something to disguise josh johnson as number zero because normally he's like i think what was he number 14 or number 81 like he's he's been on the roster for you know his entire career with the same number and then just to come out as number zero and and get four reception for 40 yards i loved it jordan watkins four for 34 Dwayne mitchell two for 27. He had that big 25 yard play. Um, They spread the ball out a lot. I really liked that. Uh, But the glaring turnovers, I mean, that's the problem with this team, Matt. Like if you want to boil it down to one thing, it's the turnovers coming from the quarterback position. Um, And I want to talk about this a little bit more as we go on, but I I think there's got to be a conversation at two and uh, three and six, I think is their record at this point about whether or not it's time to start sprinkling in a second quarterback, because um, I think that, that Mikhail, that Mal- oh, goodness gracious, I just did it after I said I wouldn't do it, but Malik <laughs> Cunningham, I think he's been afforded too much comfort, comfortability. Like, I think that in his head, he knows that there's not another guy on the roster that the staff feels comfortable playing. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. Whether or not that's just a bad assumption on my part, I don't know. But he's just far too comfortable. He's the point guard on your team that is is making the behind-the-back passes. And, you know, he's throwing it between his legs. And he's doing all these fancy things because there's nobody behind him. He's shooting every shot that, that comes open because there's not another guy behind him who can play at his level. It allows you to get more comfortable. Right. Uh, and I just think he's gotten far too comfortable with turnovers. And at some point, Coach Satterfield has to say, look, you want to turn the ball over? You, you, you want to make these big the plays, bench. that's fine. You want to make these big plays and do all this and, and you know, be able to make plays, that's great. But if you're going to turn the football over like this and cost us possessions, we're going to take you to the bench and we're going to see somebody else who can. Or maybe who can. Uh, you know, there's no guarantee that Louisville has another guy who can do what he does. Right. And, and I can understand uh, Satterfield wanting to stick with him because I know the big fear before that Satterfield and that staff got there was that everyone was afraid to make mistakes under that previous regime with Bobby Petrino and whatnot. If you made a mistake, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter uh, how much other good you did. You were at risk of getting like pulled from your starting position. Doesn't matter if you're a quarterback, running back, defensive back, linebacker. If you screwed up, there was a good chance that Bobby Petrino was going to yank you for a couple series and just let you just think about what you did. It didn't matter who you were. So it, it Satterfield, when he came here, he wanted to plant inside Mikhail's mind that, hey, even if you do bad, you're still my guy. You're still my guy. And I understand that that gives him confidence, and, and rightfully so. That, that's his team. But in the same breath, it's it seems like he's starting to get a little bit complacent in his play, like knowing that no matter what kind of hero ball type uh, plays he he puts out there, that Satterfield is still going to stick with them. And Satterf- I, in my mind, I think Satterfield should stick with Cunningham because I don't think, uh, other than having a good deep ball, Conley doesn't present a lot more than what Cunningham does in the short game and, and in the uh, running attack. Jawan Pass, I don't think, is as accurate as he, as he should be. And T-Webb, he's just 
I know people are calling for T Webb to start and get some reps because going forward, he's going to be probably the signal caller, either him or someone else coming in from the class of 2021, but he's still an underdeveloped freshman. I mean, you can, you can give all the, um, the playing time and practice reps all you want, but until you see live game reps, you're truly not going to know what it's like. So I, I don't know if going straight to T Webb is, is the move. I still think they should stick with Cunningham, but Satterfield needs to have a conversation with Cunningham and tell him, I know you're my guy. I, you, you have the keys to this offense, but you, you have to make better decisions or it's going to end up pay, uh, costing your job. Yeah. The, I mean, the turnovers are like when you boil it down, like I said, it, it is the number one issue of this team. It is the reason why they sit with the record they do. But still, despite that, they're an offense that that when they are connecting and making big plays, they are as dynamic as anybody in the country. They still have two of the best weapons uh, in Des Fitzpatrick and Tutu Atwell. Um, and then uh, when you sprinkle in Braden Smith and Marshawn Ford, um, you know, th- there's just so many options out there for Malik to, to get the ball in their hands. And, um, you know, I just expect more from a guy who's been here now for three years, um, who's played a lot of snaps, who last year took good care of the, the ball. He had five interceptions last year. We're sitting at 11 already with two games to go. Um, you know, it's it's encouraging at times to see him running and to see him connecting on some of these nice throws. Uh, but it is more discouraging when you think about um, the interceptions, the fumbles, uh, when you think about just not being able to read the full field, I mean, that really Malik mm-hmm. Cunningham is a one f- side of the field quarterback, which is why I have lost all hope in, a, in an NFL career at this point. There's still two more seasons for him to play at quarterback if he stays at the University of Louisville or, to, or you know, where to transfer or play somewhere else. But um, for for me, man, it's the turnovers. I, I At this point, if he continues to go with the two and three turnovers per game, these final two games, I want to see Evan Conley. Juwan Pass is not the answer. Like, let's not put Juwan Pass in. It was great to get to see him complete two passes for 17 yards uh, and obviously to have that drive a few weeks ago where he got in. But he's not the guy. I don't think giving him snaps is going to benefit anybody at this point. Uh, I, I tend to agree with you that it, T. Webb is a guy who does not look ready to play. Like, he needs another full spring, another full summer to kind of get ready, learn the offense. But I do say this, and we'll talk about this as the, the podcast goes along and as we get towards the end of the year. But I do think that these last few games, Matt, are going to be really important as to whether or not there is an open quarterback competition heading into spring and, and summer of next year. Now, the quarterback competition, when coaches talk about it, a lot of the times it's coach speak to kind of motivate one guy or to try to make it seem like it's something that it's not. But I think that this season we entered in, obviously Malik was the guy, no matter what. And had right. up until this point, maybe Louisville was sitting at, at you know four wins or five wins instead of just three maybe that conversation wouldn't need to take place. But I think the final two games, depending on how he plays, what the outcomes are, that decides whether the quarterback competition is open next year. Absolutely. Um, And that's important because with T-Webb here, you bring in TJ Lewis, who I don't think is going to be a factor right away. Maybe you go out and decide you need to get a graduate transfer or somebody who can come in and push him. Uh, But I just think that that there's been just too much comfortability at this point. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing a lot of interceptions is just an, a willingness to kind of over overdo things instead of just take the simple play, throw the ball away. Um, you know, he kind of looks for these big plays downfield. But one thing I do want to talk about that you and I uh, both were really excited about was the running game um, against Syracuse. Absolutely. Now, I don't think the numbers by any by any means like stood out as being like this being like a huge, impressive game. Uh, they only rushed a total for 134 yards. Only one guy had more than 50 yards, but uh, Maurice Berkeley, Jalen Mitchell, and Hassan Hall, who was back for the first time in several weeks, I thought that they looked really good in this kind of running back by committee. Oh, absolutely. When Whenever it was first announced uh, against Virginia that uh, Tutu and Javion were not going to be available, one of the first thoughts that I had was, this is going to be our first chance to see what this Louisville offense can do once Javion uh, bolts for the NFL, which he eventually did declare the next week, and once uh, Tutu Atwell either decides to either decides to go to the NFL or graduates. And over the last couple weeks, I've been largely uh, pleased with what I've seen, I think, and out of the running game, I, I love, I absolutely love what I see out of Maurice Berkeley. He's a hard nose between the tackles runner, but he's also got a, lo- a little bit of burst to him. I-, I love watching him just try and find those holes in the offensive line. And once he finds that hole, he just bursts through. And w- if there's a defender in his way, he just lowers that shoulder and just trucks them. I-, I absolutely love his style of running. He's physical, but he's got speed. And Jalen Mitchell as well. He he did some he had some great 
individual chunk plays in spurts when he saw playing time. I think moving forward, especially when you sprinkle in Aiden Robbins, I know he only had uh, four yards on three carries in this game, but he's he's shown flashes of brilliance as well. I think moving forward, most little fans have to be you know optimistic about what we have in this rushing attack, especially if uh, <laughs> this coaching staff is still going to you know run on first down from here on out. But on, with this run dominant inside outside zone scheme uh, out of the pistol with all of these running backs they have at their disposal, I think eventually it's going to it's it's going to hit. And there's still some work to be done, especially on the offensive line. And I think another year in the system, these running backs, uh, I don't know who I don't know who's going to be the starter. I don't know who you pencil in at this point because several of them can make a case for it. But moving forward, you have to be confident after, after, in what you see in the running back position. Yeah, I, I was really excited about a lot of it. There was one drive in the first half where Jalen Mitchell just really stood out with his big plays. He made a third down run. I think it was uh, like a third and 12 maybe, or uh, I'm not exactly sure what the downage was, but he made a really, really, really nice play running the football. And then he had a third down conversion through the air, um, caught a ball where where the, the blitz came from the right side of the field. Malik Solid identified where it was coming from, found Mitchell. They were able to get six, seven yards on a passing play. Like that's the kind of stuff that you want to see. The passing game with the running backs has been virtually non-existent the last you know year and a half with Scott Satterfield here. I love to see getting those guys mixed in more. And I, I, I said this out loud and I thought maybe it was silly and I just went back and looked and kind of compared the numbers but Maurice Berkeley reminds me of a poor man's Brandon Radcliffe he's fast when he needs Mm. to be but he when he runs into somebody nine out of ten times he's running that person over Um, and Berkeley just looked fluid I thought he looked great he found the holes Uh, he made people miss now his offensive line a lot of the times and same with Hassan Hall I thought Hall looked like he was getting there not exactly there yet with his explosion but there was holes that the the opportunity for for holes to be created in the offensive line just didn't make the block that they need Um, and you you just at this point in the season you don't like to see that but at the same time that stretch left stretch right play finally started to hit a little bit more than it has this season Um, and when you have that play working without JV and Hawkins in there it kind of gives you some positivity to take forward and, and move away with through the rest of the season as those guys kind of start to become the next um, you know, crop of running backs for Scott Satterfield and, and really start to try to kind of figure out what the backfield looks like. Um, I'm excited to see what that looks like moving forward. Absolutely. Now, and you can say the same thing for the receiving corks. I know Tutu didn't have that great of a game. He only had one catch for 19 yards. But finally, finally, we saw another game, like for the first time since I want to say maybe the Miami game, that Braden Smith had a meaningful, impactful presence in this game. He had seven catches for 65 yards. I, I really don't know why Smith was kind of underutilized towards the middle, of the middle of the season, but it was great to see Malik Cunningham finally give him some more targets, or maybe not even that, but finally get the coaching staff, him involved some more. It was nice to see Jordan Watkins, I think, who is going to be a future star in this program. He looks like a budding star in the making. Uh, Desmond Fadrick, he had a couple a couple nice catches once he came in. Josh Johnson did some great things. I think that you, you saw some good things out of the receiving core. Maybe not some great things out of the receivers, but you saw good things. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so the, the next thing I want to talk about before we move into Boston College is just the overall coaching and play calling that we've seen this season. I know that Louisville fans have been very critical of Scott Satterfield and some situations specifically with third down plays, first down plays with running the football. uh, And then with his fourth down play calling, I thought in this game, the play calling overall was better. And the reason why I say that Matt is because when it's so bad that it becomes glaringly obvious, that's when you kind of know there are specific games this season where you can point to Pittsburgh is a great example. First half, you you just wonder what is he seeing that we're not the play calling doesn't make sense. You mentioned it with, with, um, uh, with Braden Smith, the wide receiver, you know he had that big game against western kentucky where he had that 63 yard play down the field and then after that he just kind of disappeared uh but this game they got him going with those pop passes with those um you know the outside the outside zone reads like you you love to see that stuff and you wonder where that's been but the one thing in this game that you and i both talked about as we were texting each other was the fourth down play calling and it's one thing with scott satterfield this year i just don't understand they go for it when they shouldn't and they don't when they should um i I wrote game notes down for this for this particular game for the first time this season and on Louisville's first drive i wrote down you don't go for it on fourth and one with five question marks and five question marks means like, what are you doing? So fourth and one, they have the opportunity here. They settle for a 50 yard field goal, which James Turner makes. And James Turner looks like a star. You're talking about stars, Matt, James Turner looks like a star. And we have been very fortunate over the years to have some really nice kickers. And I think that he's the next one in line. 
So you have that fourth down play where they go for or they don't go for it. And then on their third drive, it's fourth and five, and you go for it there. I just don't understand the, the, the fourth and one opportunity um, you're on your side of the field or on their side of the field. You have the opportunity to, to give it to Mitchell, give it to Cunningham to sneak up the middle. Like you have so many opportunities and you don't go for it, but then on a fourth and five where your drive just, it doesn't really make a ton of sense. Um, they, like the way that the play calling had kind of gone that play, they went third and 12. They had a QB draw or a QB um, run up the middle, uh, like a QB draw. And it just, it's like, why third down? I don't get it. They got it, but it doesn't matter because the play calling there, it just doesn't make sense. Now, fourth and five, you don't go, you go for it here. It just leads me to wonder like, what are you doing? And then you had another scenario late in the second half. I think it was where they went for it again on fourth down. And I just, I just don't understand. Is it just, you know, if you look at this season in kind of a vacuum and, and some of this, the particular play calling, I just don't get it because last year we saw different things in those spots that, that led to wins. Um, they didn't go for it nearly as much until late in the season when Shalifo was the kicker. Uh, when they did, it was usually fourth and one, fourth and two on their side of the field. But this season, Satterfield has been much more willing to go for it when it doesn't make sense. And more times than not, Matt, it's led to them not getting conversions. Right. And I don't want to give them too much, flag, well, especially on the third down, but I don't want to give them too much flag for the fourth down because they did convert both of their fourth downs. And I think the last I checked, they were converting fourth downs on an 81% clip of something of that nature. But more often than not on third downs right before that, they just haven't been getting it done. And the, I think the last game that I think I was truly satisfied, not like happy with the outcome per se, but truly satisfied with the play callings and what they were doing in certain situations was probably the Florida State game because that was the first time up to that point where I feel like it wasn't just running formation out of the pistol where Malik just kind of turns around and hands it off or just uncorks the bomb or some simple vanilla offensive play calling like that. That was the first time probably since, I know there was kind of shades of it during Western and a couple of those early games. But in that game versus Florida State, it seems like they really opened up that offense. They're, they were doing more uh, stretch plays in the, in the run game. They were do, getting more creative with those. They were, they were actually spreading the ball around other than to receivers not named Tutu Atwell. I think that was the first game in which Dez had a bigger game because I think up to that point, he wasn't really getting a lot of love through the, through the air for some reason. But I, And it seems like after that game, they went back to play calling in a vanilla style. And that that's what boggles my mind because what was the one thing we heard about offensively on that side of the ball throughout the offseason? Oh, we didn't, we couldn't really do a whole lot because like we were just now implementing our system. We ran a vanilla offense, but now we're going to open up the playbook. All right. So are you going to open up the playbook for more than just a couple games or what's going on here? I just don't understand why it seems that this offensive play calling has been just largely vanilla. Still. I really don't understand. Are people really grasping, not really grasping what they're trying to do on offense. That part, I don't really understand. And you would think that some of these guys, especially Malik, especially Javen and Tutu and Des, people who have been there around, been there a while, you would think that, they would kind of scheme around them and be able to get them to the ball more. But it seems like they just time in and time out, not only with having a vanilla play calling style, but just having questionable calls on third down and whatnot, where it's just, I, I don't understand why they continue to trend in this direction. Yeah. It really makes you wonder again, what they're seeing that you're not. And uh, there are football coaches who have the acumen and understanding of what they're watching and how to react to it in real time. Um, but I just think that there's been a very, a, a lot of, of questionable calls this season. We saw a few of those against Syracuse. Uh, and before we move on to Boston college, we've made it almost 30 minutes into the podcast without even mentioning the defense, which I thought against Syracuse looked great. They held Jacoby and Morgan to just 40 yards passing. He took that just nasty hit from your Sierra Abdul in the second second quarter, I think, that, that knocked him out. And then from there, they only throw four more passes and complete five yards. Uh, and they hold Syracuse rushing to just 92 yards. They get an interception with Control Clark. They force two fumbles on kickoff returns. They just overall, they played a much better game. And um, I really like seeing the youth injection that they had. I thought that KJ Cloyd played really well. Um, I thought that that Marvin Dallas played really well. Um, Josh Minkins looked good. Jadarian Boykin got to the quarterback with a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of times when it was real close. I thought that we kind of saw what the defense will look like moving forward. And they were I thought that they just stood out as being far much far faster and far more athletic than what we've seen so far this season. 
Absolutely. And shout out to Brian Brown for letting letting some of those youngsters get in having that play time because moving forward after this COVID year, they're going to have to be relied on a lot more because this defense loses a lot of seniors next year. So getting getting some of those younger guys the reps now is going to be crucial for the season that we set up for next year. And I know there have been some some games this year where the defense hasn't looked the greatest and still has flash shades of what they were doing last year by giving up the big play. But overall, I think you've you've got to be satisfied with with the uh, progressions that they've done on defense. I know at one point in the year they were in the top ten in uh, tackles for loss. Now they still they were still struggling in the beginning of the season to get to the quarterback and get sacks on them. But in the as far as keeping quarterbacks largely contained, especially the dual threat ones, and just keeping running games relatively stifled, not completely shut down, but just doing enough to get stops. You've got to be satisfied with, with what this defense has done in the in year two of Brian Brown's system, and I'm I'm excited to see all this momentum go forward with some of these youngsters. What he's all the playing time that they've received so far, and what they can do with this top tier uh, recruiting class coming in next year. Yeah, do you feel old when you use the term like youngsters? Because that just made you feel that like to me, I I just placed you with five kids, two dogs, with a minivan. Like I, the, the term youngsters is just so good that you threw that yeah. in there. So when, when I when I said that, I, I kind of grimaced a little bit, and I was trying to move past the fact that I just said youngsters. <laughs> That's great. All right, so let's talk about Boston College a little bit. We'll quickly move into this and through this that they are a, a decent football team. I think they're far better than what we expected them to be. They've got a new head coach this season, and Jeff Halfley, who was the co-defensive coordinator at Ohio State last season. They sit at five and four at this point in the season and four and four in ACC play, sixth overall in the conference. They've got wins over Duke, Texas State, Pittsburgh in overtime, Georgia Tech in Syracuse, uh, and they hold losses against Notre Dame this past weekend, Clemson, Virginia Tech, and North Carolina. So the majority of their losses, actually all four of their losses, um, have come against ranked teams, interestingly enough. Uh, but their wins, Matt, they've only won uh, one game by more than 14 points. Um, it looks like one of them, two games by more than 14 points. One of those was against Duke, and the other of those was against Georgia Tech. They've won games against Texas State by three points, Pittsburgh by one point, and Syracuse by three points. So they are a team that knows how to win close games, but they've also lost a few. Um, just a general overview, they've got a new quarterback in play this year. Anthony Brown is no longer the guy there. Uh, Phil Jerkovich, who is a former Notre Dame quarterback, is now the guy uh, under the, under center. He's known for 2,355 yards, 17 touchdowns, and five interceptions. Um, he, he's looked really good and has really given them a passing game that they have not had in a long time. Um, surprisingly, though, without A.J. Dillon, their rushing attack has fallen off. David Bailey, who is a guy that Louisville fans have seen a lot the last few years play well, he is the leading rusher with 450 yards. That's it. Like They are not a great rushing team this year, uh, but they do have dynamic receivers in Zay Flowers, Jalen Gill, C.J. Lewis, and then the tight end Hunter Long, who absolutely tore Louisville apart last year. Uh, so I move into that to ask you, what what are you feeling? How's your confidence level? Do you think that we're in a place where we might see Louisville put together two wins for the first time this season, if I'm not mistaken, correct? I I, I don't know. This this has trap game written all over. You and I both know that there's always one game per season where Louisville should be set up relatively well for a win, and for some reason they fall flat on their face. Now I know there's been a lot of quote-unquote trap games this year based on how Louisville's played. But this 100% screams game that Louisville could easily get away from because I, I'm buddies with uh, the Boston College writer over at uh, on uh, the SI network, AJ Black, and him and I chat all the time. And I've been kind of loosely following Boston College because I'm a big, I'm a huge fan of Jeff Halfley and what he's done. So I knew from the get go that he was going to be a great fit for them. And so far, all the early returns suggest that he is a home run hire and he's going to get them going in the right direction. Um, my one knock on Boston college up to this point, it seems like they kind of play to the level of their opponent. Cause like, cause like you said, they, they took Clemson tigers to the wire. They only, they only lost by six, but at some point I think they had like a double digit lead at halftime. Yeah. Um, I mean, they got taken to the woodshed by Virginia tech, but um, they also, uh, Barely lost to then number 12, North Carolina, by just four, 26-22. They, at one point, were kind of in the game with Notre Dame at at, um, Chestnut Hill, but before that one got away from them. But then again, you look, let's see, Syracuse, who Louisville just blew out 30 to nothing. They only won by three. You look at Georgia Tech, yeah, that was a double-digit game. But then you look at Pitt, who I've only, I think, has only won one game since Louisville faced them. They had to go to overtime to beat them on a missed extra point attempt. And then Texas State, which you would think they would be able to handle 
handily, but they only squeaked that one out by three points and they beat Duke, who is arguably one of the, probably the one team that's better than Syracuse, like the one team who might be worse than Syracuse, which is really saying something. Duke is not a good team this year, but it seems like uh, Boston College has been someone who plays to level their opponent, which who knows what kind of Boston College we're going to see against Louisville because you would think that Louisville should be a better team than what they are, but their record surely surely didn't reflect that, especially the turnover margin didn't reflect that. So I'm not sure which Boston College we're going to, we're going to see against Louisville, but I digress. Um, I'm really big on Phil Jerkovic. He, is, he can sling that rock, and not only can he sling it, he can keep defenses honest with his legs. I hate to use the, the typical white guy cliche with quarterbacks, but he is quote-unquote sneaky athletic. He's, he's <laughs> Jim Rat. Yeah, Jim Rat, yeah. grinder, stays in the lock, stays in the gym, does but, the little um, things. Yeah, man. We, exactly. we, we, basically, you're talking about a white quarterback. That's what I hear. <laughs> Pretty much. But he he got close to 100 yards rushing against Georgia Tech. And I know Georgia Tech's not that great, but he also he has he's not he's kept his inter- interceptions relatively down. He's thrown for two touchdowns in most of his games this year. I mean, against Clemson, he completed half his passes through a pair of touchdowns, 204 yards. I mean, and that's not a defense where you can get your yardage easily. I mean, just talk to any Louisville fan who's watched the Louisville versus Clemson game. I mean, Clemson will take you to the woodshed if you're not prepared. So to see him perform relatively well against that defense, and I, th- I think they might have been short maybe one or two key defensive pieces, but, I mean, it's Clemson. They can just plug and play five-star recruits, and they'll be good to go. They're like Alabama of the ACC. But to see him perform not only against Clemson to that level, but he's also had a pair of 300 300- – no, not a pair. He's had three 300-yard passing games against Virginia Tech, who is ranked, Pittsburgh, who is ranked, and Duke, which, I mean, that's Duke, but still. So he he is a very solid prospect. The he, uh, Boston College was done a favor when he was his waiver was cleared by the NCAA. And not only him, but Boston College kind of had shades of Syracuse in, uh, in creating turnovers. I know one of the big storylines heading into the Syracuse game was, oh, Syracuse has an opportunistic defense that can create turnovers. Well, Boston College can do the same thing. As of right now, they have 17 turnovers gained, which is second in the ACC and third in the nation. And they're only trailing Syracuse and UCF nationally. So, I mean, we're essentially facing Syracuse, but better, which that, and considering we're going on the road this time, this, I know Louisville's coming on a, off a big win. They're coming off a shutout. They scored 30 points. They're going to have a lot of juice, a lot of momentum, confidence, all that jazz, but just, Given what Boston College has done up to this point, I'm not completely sold that Louisville can go up to Chestnut Hill and escape with a victory. In fact, I think if Louisville's not careful, Boston College can easily put this game away easily. Yeah, Matt, you and I, this is the first episode, man, but we are we are grooving on a different level of being on the same page here. I, I early in the season, went on the record predicting Louisville to lose to Boston College, and this is with Louisville having a record of somewhere between you know, 10 and one and nine and two at the beginning of the season, we are in a completely different spot now. And I don't feel much differently about this game. Um, this is the game is now two nights after Thanksgiving versus this would have been a Friday night game. Had the schedule stuck the way that it was supposed to be. Um, I don't like the idea of traveling to Boston college when it is freezing, there will likely be no fans or very little fans. There's just something about that environment that I just see Louisville struggling with. Uh, last year, their, their defense really had a hard time covering the tight ends. They, I know that's a different coach and a different scheme, but they, they did a great job of scheming up plays for Hunter long. Um, and those other weapons that they had, I, I can't remember the other tight ends. They it was on the field last year that scored a touchdown, but um, Zay Flowers and Hunter Long are dynamic weapons who um, can make plays if given the ability. And if Louisville doesn't come ready to play, um, I, I, I think that they can. Now, I, I feel much better about this game because uh, of the defense for Louisville. They're, they're, they've been so, so much better the last month or two, the Notre Dame game and now the Syracuse shutout. I feel good about them being able to cover Flowers, to be able to put a body on Hunter Long that they're, now that they're playing some more of these more athletic linebackers versus just C.J. Avery and Dorian Etheridge. Um, I think that there's an opportunity here to go out and get a big win, a big win. Um, but that that road environment, that cold, and just considering the fact that that Boston College can connect on big plays, and, and if they catch Louisville slipping, you know, here or there, I, I think that this is a game that Boston College could win, like you said. Um, in terms of of just kind of what you think could go right for Louisville, what do you think? Like, what are the things that kind of stand out? Of uh, if they're going to win against Boston College, it's probably going to be because they did this. I think they have to keep the uh, passing game in check, and th- then it's it's going to be difficult because Jerkovic is is pretty good in that, and he has a great receiver in Zay Flowers. But considering what the defense did in this last game, I mean, th- there's a really good chance that they might be able to to 
hold Boston College in check. I mean, I think you need to put Keytro Clark to man up on Zay Flowers for most of that. I think you need to take uh, maybe Dorian or CJ and key up against some of those tight ends over the middle. Get dial up some pressure every once in a while with Monty. He looked a lot better against Syracuse than he did the week before against Virginia. So you're going to have some momentum there. And the safety safety's down uh, up back in the back end. They've played a lot better. So if and I want to give a shout out to the special teams because yeah, Louisville forced three turnovers over this game, but two of them were on special teams on forced fumbles on kickoff. Cause if, if those two don't happen right there, I mean, I think Louisville still wins against Syracuse, but it, it, it's not a shutout, not by a long shot. So I think they have to excel both on defense and special and special teams offense. I mean, they have, they have a pretty opportunistic defense, Boston College does, but I think if the defensive end and the special teams end can kind of keep their end in check, I, as long as the offense does not completely tank, I think Louisville should, I don't want to say will, but should squeak out a victory because if, if, if this offense just completely legs a goose egg, and it doesn't matter what the defense does. You, you can't win if you don't score points. Yeah, I don't know enough, enough about Boston College's defense at this point, which I should probably not admit that when I'm – leading a podcast and talking about an opponent. <laughs> um, but it, as long as Louisville can, like you said, keep that passing game going, hopefully that uh, another week you'll have Tutu Atwell feeling a little bit better. You'll be able to have Des Fitzpatrick and Justin Marshall out there for the full first quarter. Um, so for a full game, you you hope that that will kind of change things and maybe won't put so much pressure on Cunningham. Hopefully you have Marshawn Ford back. Um, and, and I think that they can continue some of this momentum and potentially put together a winning streak to finish the season here. But this is by no means the, the Boston College of years past where, it, you know, uh, Louisville hasn't had that luxury, Matt, of being able to put a, a W besides Boston College just because they're on the schedule. But for a lot of teams, Boston College has just been a bottom feeding, you know, automatic W. Uh, and that definitely is not the case moving forward with Jeff Hathley and Phil Jerkovic. Let's let's quickly before we end the show here, let's address the the questions that we have in the mailbag. Uh, we're going to try to start doing this each week. If this is something that our audience is interested in, um, just you know, throw some questions out here for us, and, and we'll try to do our best to talk through them. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier, Matt, but uh, Alex Stengel, who is my co-host over at Life and Basketball, um, he asked what the what the conversation should be about the quarterback position going forward. You and I both kind of feel the same that this year it's probably best that Malik continue to take the majority of the snaps, start the game and lead you. He's the, obviously the best guy to win at this point. But um, we, we talked a little bit about, do you sprinkle in Evan Conley? Do you sprinkle in a T-Web? Um, and what does the, what does the battle look like in the narrative of the quarterback position heading into for, uh, you know, spring practice at the end of the season. But um, in your mind, is Malik the guy long-term? I want to say he should be, but like you said, it, it. I think it'll be open competition come winter practice and spring meet and whatnot because I think Malik knows that he needs to play better. And his his job this year is going to be safe because it's been a weird year, 2020 with COVID and all that. But if you perform like this, your, your job shouldn't be safe. And I know um, Satterfield wanted to give Cunningham a lot of confidence because and give him the keys to the offense and just make sure everything was set continuity-wise. But he, he should not feel safe one bit heading into this offseason. And we might see Evan Conley give him a run for his money. T-Webb, if he somehow kicks his development into high gear, maybe give him some rep. I, like you said, I really don't think uh, Juwan Pass is going to be the long-term answer. If he hasn't been the answer at this point, I don't think it's going to be him. But no matter who could give him a run for his money, Malik absolutely should not be safe, feeling safe whatsoever heading into this offseason. And he needs to really takes he needs to really just embrace the competition because some of those those other quarterbacks are going to be gunning for the gunning for his job and they should because it should be up for grabs in the offseason yeah I, I think that in the, the offseason that one of the the things that they need to do should a scholarship come available is look into gra adding a graduate transfer quarterback you need somebody there who can push him um, and I think that by now that Cunningham probably has an understanding of whether or not Conley is a guy who can long-term be the guy. I don't see that. I think that um, he's a guy who's going to stay until he graduates and, and is able to use that to go and play somewhere else as a graduate transfer. If that option is available to him, or he's going to just be a backup guy that's here. I think that the true competition comes from T Webb. The staff would obviously have a better idea if that's a serious competition at that point. But for me, I think you need somebody to push Cunningham and a graduate transfer who has everything on the line, who wants to play and be out on the field um, is somebody that can push him and maybe help him to kind of clear up those turnovers and some of the mistakes that he's made this year. Second question we got uh, was regarding the offensive line. And we talked about this again. Um, the offensive line has struggled this year. They've, they've, they've had to replace a lot. 
but there has been a lot of praise on Dwayne Ledford for his work last year and the improvement that they did. But I feel like we've not given him enough. Um, I, I don't want to say criticism. I think that might be too harsh here, but there has been some regression along the offensive line, which is bound to happen when you lose a first rounder and a guy who's on a practice squad in the NFL. But I just don't think that they've gotten better each week. In fact, I think they've been very inconsistent. The veterans have not played up to the level that you expect, um, but they are kind of what they are at this point, right? Or do you think that Ledford needs to get the Kobe Baines and the Tim Lawson's and the Joshua Blacks and the Zach Williamson's of the world, some reps in there and see what they can do. See, I'm, I'm going to say this. I think we all knew no matter how much we wanted to hype up Adonis Spoon, and don't get me wrong, he, he's, done, he's done relatively well. But, I mean, when you lose a first-round draft pick at Jacob's blocking trophy, first-team All-ACC selection in Mekhi Becton, there's going to be some regression. I mean, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I mean, there was bound to be some sort of regression there. So I think seeing it there didn't really surprise me. What really surprised me, and I know Hay- Haycraft is is good. He's on. He was on an on, an NFL practice squad for a reason, but I I was not seeing the huge dip in production at that spot going from him to Renato Brown, because everything that we heard over the offseason was that Renato Brown looked amazing in practice. He's going to be a suitable replacement for Haycraft, and then at at, at he's just not done all that well. I mean, I, there were a couple times in the, especially in the Georgia Tech game where he got outright yanked because he couldn't stop committing boneheaded penalties i think yeah. if i remember correctly I, I didn't see it live but i think the broadcast picked it up he took a georgia tech player's shoe and just tossed that thing out of bounds uh, that's little things you can't do that and then the next the, the next game i can't remember who they played he committed a really boneheaded uh holding or unnecessary roughness or something of that nature something that louisville just could not afford and that seemed to be a theme for towards the middle of the season. It seems like he's gotten better in that department, but he's still struggling on actual offensive line play. And it's gotten to the point where Cameron George actually had to get some time at um at right tackle a little bit. And I think Robbie Bell, he he's had he's had a, an okay year. He's had to take a little bit of extra reps towards the middle of the season because at, at one point Bell wasn't doing all that hot. But I I knew there was going to be some regression on O line because of who was leaving. I just wasn't. I was a little bit shocked to see it regress that much especially across the offensive line as a board. I, I, like I said, I was expecting it over on the left side because of who they were losing there. But to see the whole the offensive line regression to whole is a little bit surprising. But to answer your question, I think they can be because I, I have faith in Dwayne Leverett. I'm, he's, he's, there's a reason he, is, he gets paid what he does. He's put two guys in the league back-to-back years that were first-round draft picks or something like that. And so I don't know if going straight to Kobe Baines and Jackson Gregory – uh, right now is the answer, but I think they should probably take a lot of the, of the reps in the off season because I think at this point you have to go with with the continuity sake, even if it's not trending in the right direction, just to finish out the season and not not like completely lose track of your position group. But once the off season gets here, I think you have to go with a lot of these newcomers, kind of like the defense is doing. Yeah, I think the offensive line has easily been. Um, the unit that we've not criticized enough. Um, and, and again, they're college students, so criticism may be a harsh word there, but I, I think their play has been um, subpar at times. Um, I think critique is probably the more proper yeah, word. Considering exactly, right. Exactly. Critique. I, th- I think that they've kind of flown under the radar because the issues with the turnovers have been so glaring. And then on the defensive end, the big plays and some of the other things that you talk about. Uh, but the offensive line, they've committed a lot of penalties. Um, they've made a lot of mistakes. They've not run blocked nearly as well as they did last year. Uh, and it has really hurt the offense as a whole. And again, I think there's a couple of things that play into cutting him with the turnovers and just some of his bad play. But the offensive line is a big part of that. Um, I do think that you, you mentioned it. I think that the interior of the line has not taken the step forward that we expected them to. Um, and the leadership that you thought you'd get out of Bell, Bentley, and Chandler – um, they've played good. Don't get me wrong. They've played good, but not great. They've made mistakes. They, they've they fallen short in some areas. Um, and so this offseason, I do expect them to sprinkle in some of those young guys. They're going to be a young offensive line next year because they lose Bentley. They lose to George. Um, they lose um, Robbie Bell. Um, obviously, they'll, they'll still have Caleb Chandler. They'll still have, you know, Adonis Boone, and they'll still have Renato Brown. But um, there'll be the opportunity to sprinkle in some of these young guys that we just haven't gotten to see this year. Hopefully that those guys have been you know, putting the work in in the weight room and doing the little things that you hope to see uh, from young guys who aren't seeing the field so that when the time does come that they can, you know, step in and be able to provide some competition and move into those spots. 
So this is this does it. It's the first episode of From the Pink Seats podcast is in the book. Uh, I really hope that you guys have enjoyed this. I hope that you will continue to come back and listen and support Matt and myself as we um, spend the last month or two of this season uh, trying to make sense of everything that's happened. Um, as always, please stay uh, up to date with us on Twitter. You can follow us um, at General Wasp is the handle for, for Matt. Myself, you can follow me at Jacob Lane 8 And as always, please check out our work at stateofloable.com. As you hear this, we have officially launched on Monday, uh, November 23rd. There is all kinds of great work from our team. I hope that you will that you will navigate over to the site and that you will spend some time reading through that work. Uh, it's going to be a fun, fun season, Matt. It's going to be a short, abbreviated run here for us as we're going to stop likely in January for picking back up again next season, but I'm really looking forward to, to tag team in this podcast uh, and blowing this thing up, man. I look forward to more episodes, man. I'm sure we can find some topics to talk about in the off season. I mean, is there really truly an off season? There's always some sort of news going on there, whether it's recruiting or scheduling other kind of things. I'm sure we can find something to talk about. There will be plenty <laughs> to talk about my friend. And as always, you can continue to find Louisville basketball news with our Louisville basketball podcast, which will launch on our first day of the website, as well as our recruiting podcast, the red chips podcast hosted by Dalton Pence, but I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun and we will see you guys next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.